0: Hi, everyone. Good to see you, and uh, thank you for um, Bible reading. As Kotze pointed out, um, we're midway through our series in Numbers, and we've already picked up that God's judgment and God's salvation are constantly on display. And there's no exception in this particular chapter, but today we're going to just spend some time speaking thematically about these two very important parts of God's character, his judgment and his salvation. So if we can just bring up our next slide, it's really important that when we talk about God, we understand that God's justice and mercy, that his judgment and salvation are actually just opposite sides of the same Coin. Um, they're not opposing ideas. Um, God is just, God is merciful. But we need to understand um, the relationship between these two things. And we need to understand that one doesn't really make any sense without the other. Um, in religious circles, we hear a lot about people being saved. But we can't understand what it means to be saved unless we understand what we're being saved from. If God uh won't ultimately judge the world, if he doesn't have a plan to ultimately bring us before him and to do uh, justice and to divvy out punishments that fit the crime, then we can't understand what it means to be saved or to be forgiven. By the same token, when we come to passages like the one today and we see God's justice being divvied out, um, we need to always remember that that sits in the backdrop of God's salvation. We can become very distressed and feel like we have this angry and judging God until we remember that the big picture is also a picture of a worldwide offer of mercy and salvation to anyone, regardless of of race or age or background or whatever, that God will show mercy to all who look to him. So we're going to be looking at these two parts of God's character today as we move into our story. So if we could just look at our um, next slide, we hit this very sort of strange story. Um, At the beginning of the passage, we find out that God has once again come to help his people. Um, They're attacked by one of the uh, the nations that, uh, in the land, they're getting ready to enter, and God delivers them. Just another deliverance story. He's given them water when they needed water. He's given them food when they've needed food. He's helped them all along the way. And now some of their enemies are coming against them, and God gives them this great deliverance. They actually pray, and God helps them. And this is a really good thing. But then in the very next verse, as you just move through those first few verses of the chapter, it says, but then they started... Complaining again, and this sort of complaint sort of picks up on all the complaining that they've been doing throughout the book. Sometimes it's just been about water. Sometimes it's just been about food. Sometimes it's been a bit against God. Sometimes it's been against Moses. But this time, it's just the whole thing. They they complain against God. They complain against Moses. They don't like the miraculous water that is you know they've been given. They don't like the miraculous bread that's come out of heaven. They don't like anything. They just don't want to be in the wilderness. And they complain. And so God sends his judgment. One of the first things we need to see here is that we need to be reminded that God is the judge of all people and all nations. And so even though the Israel is called at this stage God's special chosen people, he's going to use this nation to work out his salvation for the whole world. But that doesn't stop God from sending his judgment against them. And so here we get this sort of strange story where God sends snakes into their camp, and they're these poisonous snakes, and they bite them, and some people are getting very sick, and some people are dying. And so it might sound like a, a weird thing for God to do. did you know he't have what, is it, He didn't have any other way to judge them, and oh, what's around? Oh, there's some snakes. Well, no, because we have to remember we're in the books of Moses. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, and God has created the world and he's put people in it and he's blessed them, and then suddenly what happens? This serpent comes slithering in, and the serpent says, you don't need to listen to God. You can be your own God. You can just do whatever you feel like doing. And what happens? That brings the whole world under a curse, and suddenly pain and disruption and crime and murder and death all enter into the world because people chose to listen to this serpent, who we come to find out is represents Satan, rather than listening to God. And so it's no mistake that God sends serpents in against them. And Why does he do this? Well, some people have said, well, it's kind of like that idea of the the hair of the dog that bit you. Have you ever heard that expression? I think it comes from a very old superstition. You know, you get bitten by a dog and you don't want to get a disease or whatever. Take a little bit of the dog hair and stick it in a cup of tea and drink it and that will ward off the evil. And then sometimes people use that when people go out drinking. They've had a big night out drinking and they say, you need a bit of the hair of the dog that bit you. That means, you know, have another shot of something and you'll be just fine that's not what this is about. This is about a warning. Uh, I don't know about you when you were younger, but my parents were, you know, poor people. They, they had to warn me a lot, and they had to warn me repeatedly. So when I was little and I would see the beautiful glow coming off of the burners on the stove, they would always say, Chad, move away from that. Don't reach out and touch it. It's hot. It will burn you. Sometimes I would look at the magical PowerPoints on the wall and I would think, I wonder what would happen if I put a paperclip in there? And they would stop me and they'd say, Chad, don't go and put metal things inside of the PowerPoint. However, until the first time that I actually reached out and put my finger on the burner and it sizzled and it hurt for a long, long time... I didn't, oh, that's why they said it. That really does hurt. I really should have listened to them. Or the first time I actually stuck a fork into the PowerPoint, I went, wow, that's why they said it. They were actually trying to save me. They weren't being mean. They were being nice. That's why they said it. And God seems to be saying here, you seem to like this serpent guy. I tell you what to do. The serpent tells you something different, and you keep on, obeying him and ignoring me. Well, you like the serpent so much, here you go. And then suddenly they're being bitten and they're dying and they're in pain. And they say, you know what? Whenever we invite the serpent into our midst and we listen to him, things seem to go bad right back from Genesis all the way until now. Maybe we need to get rid of the serpent and maybe we need to listen to God. And this is part of God's judgment. It's always there to help the people, not to do bad, but to point them to the good. But then also implicit in this passage, and and we didn't read the entire chapter, so I'm just going to give you kind of a a brief summary. It's not just about God judging Israel as his chosen people. We get a picture of God as the judge of the nations. Um, We can sometimes forget in the Old Testament, because it spends so much time talking about the Israelites, that we can forget that God is also doing work to save and to judge the other nations. And God is the judge of the nations. So if we can just bring up our next slide. Um, we, we mentioned at the very beginning of this passage that some of the Canaanite nations come down against Israel and attack them and even take some of them captive, and then God... Um, Uh, they pray to God, and and God comes and helps them and delivers them. Well, this actually happens three times in this chapter. It happens once at the beginning, once in the middle, and once at the end, just to to make the point really clear. So now's a good time um, to go back and review where we've come from in this series. Because if you can just follow this red line um, from the screen on the left where it says Ramses and down to Mount Sinai and then back up, This reminds us of the three stages of this journey. So remember, first of all, the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt. They went down to the bottom of that little triangle into Mount Sinai. That's where God delivered the Ten Commandments and told the people how to live. These are the laws I'm giving you. This is how I want you to live as my holy people. Then they go up into the wilderness of Haran and... It's at that stage, and Kotze reminded us of this, where they send the spies into the land because notice they're getting up close to where you see Israel and Jerusalem. That, that's what will become Israel and Jerusalem. Um, and the spies go in. They say, yep, the land is really good, but the people there are too big and too dangerous and too powerful. We can't defeat them. Why have you brought us here? It would be better for us to die in the wilderness. And this is their tenth complaint against God, and God says, okay. All right, I'll let you die in the wilderness. And so that entire generation is sentenced to wander in the wilderness until 40 years, until that generation has died off. Last week, we saw how Miriam, Moses' sister, died. At the end of the chapter, Aaron, Moses' brother, died. So now we see that that generation is starting to die off. And that circle there in the middle kind of is that's the 40 years of just wandering around in circles. And then you notice now they go back up. And they're now headed towards the promised land again. And these big scary people that they didn't want to go into the land because of them, well, now they're getting to the border and they're starting to say, we don't like these Israelites coming towards our land. And they start to attack them. But three times in this passage, these people that the Israelites said, we can never defeat them, three times God gives them a victory. But it's worth us reflecting on the fact that, well, who are these people? And sometimes people read the Bible and they say, these poor Canaanite people, they're all just sitting there innocently living their lives. And these big mean Israelites, they come in and they kick them out of their land. And what's going on here? This doesn't seem very fair. And so we need to go back and look at the background and the backdrop to this story because God is judging these nations as well. So if we can just bring up the next slide, I'm just going to very quickly look at this because three verses from three different parts of uh, the books of Moses, Genesis, the first book, Deuteronomy, the the last, and Leviticus in the middle. The passage from Genesis is actually in regard to Abraham, um, who came hundreds of years before Moses, He's just wandering around in the land that we now call Israel. And God says to him, in the fourth generation, after their slavery, your descendants will come back here for the sins of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. In other words, he says, God says to Abraham, "Um, right now, the land I'm going to give you is occupied by another group of people. And I'm going to let them live there until they become so bad and so despicable that I'm not willing to let them live in what will be called the Holy Land. Eventually, God's going to establish Israel as a holy land, and Jerusalem's going to be the holy city, and the temple is going to be there. And this is going to be a place where God is going to be worshipped. But there's going to be a big problem because the people who live there, they don't like God, they don't care about God, and they live a way that completely opposes God. So Abraham is told this four or five hundred years before Moses. Then we get to the book of Leviticus, and God is speaking to the people prior to them entering into the land. And in this case, he speaks to them about a number of sexual sins that are being committed by these people in the land. And it's interesting, Leviticus 18 and 19, they get thrown around a lot when people out around us in the secular world are talking about Christians' outdated views about human sexuality. So if the average person were to read through these couple of chapters, they would say, well, some of those things really aren't so bad. But if you read all the way through the list of the condemnation that God delivers out, he lists things like incest, which was commonplace, people having sex within their own family. He mentions things like bestiality, humans having sex with animals, which had become commonplace amongst these nations. And God said, when you move into the land, don't do these things because, you notice, For this reason, the land will vomit out its inhabitants. In other words, I will say you can't live like that um, in the holy land and where I will put up my holy temple. Then we get to Deuteronomy. And if you read Deuteronomy 18, this has to do with a number of occult practices, witchcraft and sorcery, and we're told that the people practice these sorts of things. And it even mentions one of the common practices was child sacrifice these people would sacrifice their own children to their foreign gods. And again, God says, you know, because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you. And then he goes on to say, and for that reason, don't you do these things. Get rid of these people. They'll be a bad influence on you. You need to live differently, the way I told you from Mount Sinai. Now, I should mention that eventually Israel does get into the promised land, and they don't drive out these nations, and Israel ends up doing all of these same things, these same practices. And guess what? God will then use some of these nations to drive the Israelites out of the land. God does not show favoritism. So he here warns them, I do not accept these kinds of practices. I am now going to judge the nations and send them out Don't you do it, or I will do the same to you. And God eventually does. The last thing I want to say about God's judgment of the nations, if we ever get uncomfortable or a little bit squeamish about the idea of God sending in one nation to drive out another, then we need to look at our own hypocrisy. Because guess what? Australia has an army. We have a military. And throughout Australia's... um, history, at least since Federation, we've had a World War I and we've had a World War II and we've had wars in Southeast Asia and we've had wars in the Middle East and wars in East Timor and we've sent our forces in. And guess what? People say when we see other nations behaving in ways that we think are bad or destructive we have the right to send in military force to correct that and to tell people to do the right thing. And we know that our government isn't right and perfect. We know we as a nation make mistakes, but still we say in the same way we need to have police officers in our own nation, we need to have judges and we need to have jails because we need to have laws and we need to uphold them. We also have an international responsibility and it's okay for us to go against another nation if they're not doing the right thing, and we can bring punishment against people and government and nations if we see fit. So if we as frail and sinful human beings feel like we have the right to send our military in against other nations, then does God not have the right to do the same thing? And that's all this is really saying. God can use the nations to judge the other nations, and now he is going to use Israel to drive out sinful nations and he will eventually use these same sinful nations to drive out israel when they're doing the wrong thing this is just god using people to police one another so if we can just go to our next slide because we've looked at god's judgment but then we begin to turn to his salvation um, and we've lost it <laughs> okay we'll just keep going so in the um... there we it'll come up um, so in this passage, we're told that these fiery snakes, which by the way could either mean that they were red in color or that they gave a bite that left a big red mark, or often the case both. You know, I think God's way of saying don't touch a snake or a spider is by putting red on it. It usually says that's a bad one. Um, and so there's very likely that these were red snakes that left a really nasty red wound. But then... Moses makes this bronze snake so that when it glistens in the sun, it kind of gives off this sort of red, fiery hue, so it kind of looks like the snakes that were in the camp. And he says, put it on a pole um, so that everyone who has bitten and looks on it shall live. So what's God doing here? Well, now the snake also represents God's salvation. I don't know if anyone has ever had to call out wires. I was actually walking up our street. We get a lot of different snakes around where we live in the Blue Mountains. But there was a guy from wires out there, and he was rummaging through the bush, and the people were going, oh, I think I saw it over there. And so what eventually happens is they go and they take their little pole, and they go and pin its head down, and then they go and they pick it up, and they say, I've got it, don't worry, and they stick it in the bag. And that's the sign, well, it's okay, I've captured the snake. When you go back to Genesis, after the serpent came into the garden and he tempted Adam and Eve and everything and brought all of this pain and suffering and death and curse into the world, at the very end of Genesis 3, God says, but I will send one of your own sons, one of your own children. Adam's name means man. I will send a son of man who will come and crush the serpent's head, who will come and defeat the serpent. And so now Moses takes this snake and he lifts it up on a pole. But one thing that is really unique about this story is in the past, God would bring this mass judgment against Israel. Moses would go in and say, God, please have mercy, and God would provide Food for everyone, or drink for everyone, or he would take away the sickness from everyone. But notice here, there is something unique. God says, "Stick the snake up on a pole, and tell the people to come and look upon it. And those who look upon it will live." So let's just think about what this might look like. These people have all been bitten. They're they're sick in their tents, and they're lying there. And someone says. Moses um, has this snake out there, and he said anyone who believes and trusts in God and his salvation, come on out of your tents and come and look at the snake on the pole, and you will live. And some people say, oh, Moses again. Another one of his stupid religious tricks. That guy is always up to something. I am not going to listen to one more word that this guy has to say. I feel too sick. I am too sore. I'm just going to stay here in my tent. And in that case, they could stay in their tent and they could die. But anyone who would say, God's saving us again, he's showing mercy again, could go out of their tents and they could look upon the snake and say, God has defeated our enemy. And they would believe and they would be healed. This was a personal act of repentance. In other words, there is salvation for the world, but it involves an act of repentance and confession from each one of us. I sinned. I rebelled. This is my fault. I believe the serpent. And now I'm entrusting God for my salvation. So as Des mentioned earlier, we'll just go to our final slide. Because Jesus tells us how we are to understand this. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus on the cross becomes a picture of both God's justice and a picture of God's salvation, not one or the other, but both at the same time. In other words, when Jesus is hanging on the pole, he is becoming the condemnation of sin. He is receiving God's justice the judgment that you and I deserved for our sin. When the sun goes black in the middle of the day, it's a sign of God's judgment. When Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a sign of God turning his back from humanity for their sins and judging Jesus on our behalf. And as the high priests and the religious leaders are condemning him as a man who is condemned to die with criminals, God is saying, I am numbering him amongst the criminals. In other words, he is taking the penalty for our sins. Jesus is guilty. God made him who never sinned to become sin for us. Jesus on the cross is a picture of God's judgment of humanity. But it's also a picture of salvation. Because in the midst of all of this, Jesus cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's a picture of God's forgiveness. Let me just read to you again those verses to remind us of God's judgment, but also of his salvation. From John 3, starting at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. They were already lying in their tents, bitten by the snake, and ready to die. Condemnation and judgment was already there. Jesus came into the world not to condemn, but to offer a way of salvation. I'm going to leave us there as we sing our song of reflection, but I just want to remind us in a moment as we come to the Lord's Supper that we have a similar symbol sitting in front of us. And I'll remind us in a little bit how this meal points to God's judgment, but also points to our salvation. But for now, let's sing our song of reflection.